Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Jones! Barman! He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins! Hello and welcome to the first Analyst Inside Cricket podcast of 2021. Happy New Year to all of you out there. Happy New Year from me as well. Well, let's hope so anyway, after a wretched 2020. Let's hope 2021 holds much more positive things in store for everybody. Well, it couldn't be any worse, really, could it? And uh, I've just done my calculation, actually. Um, There's a site on the Times which allows you to work out when you might get the vaccine. (laughs) I'm I'm behind 21 million people, which is obviously fair enough. Um, And so sometime in April. I hope that's not on April Fool's, actually. Just type in your postcode and your age and it comes up, which is quite handy. So okay. you'll be eligible a little bit after me. Um, I was, was going to yeah, say, Yoss, Maybe, after, you know, mid-April. After, yeah, after you, Yoss, not be- not before you. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I know, you're a little bit younger. Yes, <laughs> yes. And you had your wedding anniversary a couple of days ago. Who the hell gets married on December the 30th? Well, me and also my wife's best friend. They Not not in the same year, but they got, they got married uh, a few years later on... December the 30th as well. My brother got married on Christmas Eve many, many years ago. There's nothing wrong with a, a winter wedding. What's, what's wrong with a winter wedding? I do remember, actually, though, slight cricket confession, the South Africa-England series was on, and I remember going to the pub to watch the end of the Test match. I think it might be in the Durban Test match in 2004 before going to the registry office to get married. And he was just sort of hoping all the, you know, that the game was going to finish before the allocated time for the for the wedding and fortunately it did although I seem to remember from from memory now just dragging it back from the recesses of my mind that South Africa held on for a a dramatic draw. Well that's it isn't it you can take a man away from cricket but you can't take cricket away from the man eh Uh, so uh, even on your wedding morning um, yeah you're you're, you're still thinking about cricket amazing anyway uh, congratulations to you for your uh, longevity there in the uh, marital stakes. So what we're going to talk about today is a little look back at the decade uh, that's just gone and the um, amazing transformations in the game. Uh, look back actually at the last week of cricket as well, which has thrown up some interesting results. Uh, a look ahead to what we think might happen in both 2021 and also the decade to, to follow. And and also in the second half of this show, we've got some highlights from the world's best cricket club, our virtual cricket club that we created back in October. We played you the first set of highlights uh, last week. Uh, and this week, it, we've got some more with the likes of Alistair Cook, Graham Swan, Isha Guha and Joss Butler and others with some extracts from what they've been talking about on our virtual cricket club. I suppose we should start with the events of the last week, actually, Simon, because uh, two test matches that uh, threw up some, some interesting stuff. Well, three test matches, really. Um, India's amazing victory at the MCG. I, I mean, I don't think I thought they could turn it around. Not after 36 all out. 
not after Cody going home, injuries to one or two players as well, Mohamed Shami, for example. Remarkable victory for them, brilliant for Rahane. Uh, the, the moment I loved most, actually, well, I, I actually, two moments I loved most. One was him hitting the winning runs, but also his celebration after he reached his 100. It was so old-fashioned, a little cuff for four, walked down the pitch, there was sort of no emotion, and then he just took his helmet off, lifted his helmet up and, and one arm aloft and, and took the applause of the crowd, uh, from, you know, all parts of the ground, the dressing room as well, put his helmet back on, little hug with his partner, on with the cricket. Uh, it, I mean, it was so it was so cool, I thought. It was a bit like a, 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 a put a tweet out actually saying it was a bit like a player celebrating a 50 in a warm-up match. I just, I loved that moment. It was, it was just so... I don't know. It, was, it just, it was just cool. Am I allowed to use mm. the word "cool" yeah. at my age? Well, you can, you can. You can probably uh, don't tell your kids. And I, I, he's quite old school, Rahani, isn't he? Actually, he's not a sort of powerhouse type player. He's not got you know tattoos or anything. I don't think anyway. Um, you know, he's a sort of graceful cricketer, isn't he? Um, he's actually uh, not the most confident character, funnily enough. You know, when you uh, read about his um, sort of emotional assessments that I know that various franchises have done on him in the past because there's this sort of mental approach to the game which has become so important. And he scores quite low on to, in terms of, sort of being there at the end, finishing games off, which is used as one sort of calculator of how ruthless you are in a way. And he hasn't necess- necessarily scored too well in those sort of um, benchmarks. But he, he's a lovely player to watch. And in, in interesting, interestingly, Coley said before the Test Series... I back him. You know, he, he's going to take over from me. He's going to be the guy that will lead the team through any kind of adversity, and, and he has. The other thing about it as well, and what happens if he goes on and wins the series now? I mean, Cody's gone home. Rahani's taken over. I mean, I know there are quite a few people within uh, sort of observers of Indian cricket who don't think that Kohli's a great captain. And if Rahani comes in and wins the series, I mean, mm. what, what, what does that mean for, for Cody's captaincy? I, sus- I suspect that the the star system that seems to pertain in Indian cricket will insulate Kohli from being removed as as captain. But I mean, it would be a remarkable achievement. Anyway, let's mm. let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's, there's well, quite a lot to go before that. Yeah, there is. And and I mean, Kohli. If anyone's sort of critical of his captaincy, it's probably because he's a bit intolerant. He's he wears his heart on his sleeve. He's very emotional. That's not the modern way, is it? And the more captains you see now are sort of cool and and almost uh, impervious to the different uh, things that have happened on the field. Kohli's definitely not one of those. I, if I'm a player, I'm thinking I prefer the the cool approach, actually, because, you know, when you see a captain with his hands on his hips looking, you know, angry in, in what you've done, I do think that can affect you. So the Owen Morgan style definitely is more palatable, I think, to the modern player. So uh, one other little sort of point about that test, uh, the continued failures of Steve Smith, actually, uh, who scored only, what, 10 runs, I think, in the two tests. And each time he's got out slightly different ways. Uh, the last time, shuffling across a fraction too far to Jasper Boomer and getting bold leg stump. I love his reactions when he's out. It's like, this couldn't have happened, surely not. You know, that I'm not out, am I? It, it, it's almost a total disbelief when he's out. Because he's he's been a, a tremendous cricketer, obviously, and he was nominated by the ICC as the Test Player of the decade, not surprisingly. But it's interesting how teams are just finding ways of getting him out. And there was a, a little uh, nugget from a commentator on the Big Bash yesterday, saying that uh, obviously Steve Smith not playing in the Big Bash, but some are mentioning him saying he hasn't seen his wife for four and a half months because of the various biosecure bubbles. That, that, that players have had to be in, which is quite, you know, obviously there's a lot more hardship out in the world than not seeing your wife for four and a half months. But when you're a cricketer who's quite private and sensitive and doesn't necessarily relax very well, uh, you know, he does need that support of, of his wife uh, and very regular contact with the, that, that person. And so it must be quite tough for him, actually. Yeah, also, also as well. Didn't she? Wasn't she involved in throwing cricket balls for him at one point? So you know, he, he's he's losing part of his support as well. When you know, when he's away from the game and he wants to have a hit, he, I think he took it down the M- SCG one day, didn't he? Get got to throw balls at him. It, it, anyway, it has to be a bit flippant, but he, yeah, it, it's not easy. The other thing to note about uh, Smith's failures is how vulnerable that Australian batting lineup looks if Smith fails and with no. Warner in it. I know they've got Labuschagne as well, and he, you know, he's been okay-ish in this series. He, he hasn't really struggled, but he hasn't got these big runs that he did 
uh, in the Ashes and the and the previous summer in Australia. He scored you know lots of runs last summer, you know against Pakistan and and New Zealand. It just looks a little bit fragile. So there's perhaps something to work with there for England. But yeah. of course, what they've got to do next year is they've got to find a way to get Smith out consistently. You know, really reduce his his average, reduces his run scoring. I mean, the last two Test matches he was dismissed well one ball flicking the leg stump and one he was caught at leg slip so that there, mm. there is that feeling isn't there that as he gets across that he might be vulnerable uh, well yeah and the thing is it you know it's it's obvious because and, and we have talked about this before but you know logically a batsman's job is to score runs and smith has pioneered the idea which isn't exactly you know rocket science mm. that you hit the ball where the field is armed so you know the the kind of bench the, the the stereotype has been six fielders on the offside and three on the leg or mm. five four or whatever. So right, there's not so many fielders on the leg side. So I'm going to hit the ball middle and off stumps just outside off. I'm going to hit that through mid wicket, and that's how he scored a huge amount of his runs. So what do you do, what does a bowler do? Well, he keeps bowling straight, which is Smith's strength, but it's also potentially going to get him out provided you've got cover on the leg side so you're seeing more bowlers I think and this will happen more and more where that they'll concentrate on bowling straight at middle and leg stumps which traditionally is his strength but with more fielders on that side he's not going to be as productive therefore either he has to find other ways of scoring or he's going to get out because he's going to try something different to make sure he's still scoring runs so that's a that's an interesting story to follow Five four on side field, two slips, belly cover, and then five on the leg side. Um, that that thought's gone through my mind. Think how that would work. I mean, it's it's very untraditional in Test cricket. But we asked Joe Root this, didn't we, in, in mm. the virtual cricket club? Say, is it worth first ball that Steve Smith faces in the first Test of the Ashes next winter and throughout the whole series is just having a totally unorthodox plan, not having a an A plan and a B plan and a C plan, but actually in a way going straight to a you know a D plan. Right, Smith has done this to us before. He scored mountains of runs. Let's do something straight away. And you know if it begins to work a bit throughout the series, there's totally unorthodox and not not veer away from that. Um, mm. it, it, it's, it's a big call, isn't it, to do that? Because well, it... yeah, but but actually, if you look at the evidence of what happened in the the 2019 Ashes, in that first test at Edgbaston, he was nearly caught leg slip early on. The ball just evaded the fielder, and England didn't get him out until they, they sort of gave up on that tactic after yeah. a few overs and didn't really go back to it consistently until they got him out there at the oval. And by then, all the damage was done. So, you know that yeah, that there's definitely going to be a blueprint there. What about um, the other sort of great batsman of the well, one of the other great batsmen of the last three or four years, Kane Williamson? I mean, he's had a tremendous few weeks. He's gone top of the ICC Test match batting rankings i watched the i watched quite a bit of that new zealand pakistan uh, test match and i saw pakistan put them in at, at mount monganu on the first day and the pitch did look a bit green i i thought to myself i bet they get 400 even even so and of course they did and williamson played up beautifully in that first innings and they they were slow they didn't score particularly quickly on that first day but it set them up and it, it's a, a good pitch mount monganui england found that when they were there last time joffrey archer bowling 40 overs about a, a great deal of joy in the match and that game finished deep into the fifth day and this one finished even deeper into the fifth day but New Zealand uh, you know they're coming up on the rails aren't they uh, potentially top of the ICC rankings that all needs to be sorted out you know officially and then the possibility of them making the final of the world test championship as well in the summer and there's a sort of three four way battle for that depending on how England get on in their next six test matches but New Zealand they, they're so strong at home England again England found that out last time they were in New Zealand where they were really shut out of the series the defeat in Mount Monganui and the, the drawing in Hamilton they're, they're a, a very very good side New Zealand mm, they are and um, I'm hearing that not only are they going to be here this summer in England um, playing a couple of test matches in June partly I think uh scheduled to to be a kind of practice for if they are in that world test championship final um and then uh, also that there is news that uh, hasn't been confirmed yet that, that that world test championship final might not be at lords because uh, the biosecurity there is not completely foolproof you can't have a hotel on site for instance so there is a, a very good chance that that world test championship final may not be at lords now 
But New Zealand could well be in it. If you look at the top three there of the of the World Test Championship now, it's quite confusing, of course, because there are different amounts of points for, for different teams that is not related to where they are in the table. But they're all measured by the number of points they've achieved per series or per the number of matches they've played to try and make it fair because some teams have played more series than others. And uh, at the moment, Australia is still top with India just below and, and New Zealand hovering in third place. But you can quite see New Zealand, the way they're playing at the moment, with the discovery of sort of a couple of new players like Kyle Jameson, the, the all-rounder. So, uh, you know, you can see with the, the way they're well, so well led as well by, by Kane Williamson that they could, uh, they could definitely challenge for that final. I saw Kyle Jameson play for New Zealand Air against England in Whangarei uh, before the last Test Series on the New Zealand Tour. I thought, he, he, he looks like he's got a bit about him. He's, he's, he's tall, he's got some pace, and he can bat as well. He, he's sort of New Zealand's Cameron Green, if you like, or Cameron Green is Australia's Kyle Jameson. They're two good young cricketers to, to keep an eye on, Jameson and Cameron Green. You talk about looking ahead to the, the next decade. It'll be interesting to see how those two develop. I remember once... Uh, watching a, a one-day international involving Ben Stokes and James Falconer. And the, I think Falconer won the match for Australia at the Gabba by one wicket. He, he batted superbly. I remember saying, oh, I'm, I'm actually putting a tweet out at the time, I wonder who will have the best, bet the better international career, Ben Stokes or James Falconer. Well, I think that's been <laughs> conclusively settled in the, in the years since. Uh, Falconer's actually injured at the moment. He limped out of a big bash match the other day. But, I mean, clearly Ben Stokes, you know, w- way above... Faulkner. I wonder, it'd be interesting to see how those two careers develop, Jameson and Green in the next few years. Uh, Green does look to have a, a lot of talent. Not that his interventions so far in the series have been dramatic, but he, there were, there's enough to, to suggest that he's got plenty about him. Before we finish on the last week of Test Creek, we should look at Sri Lanka as well, who had a horrendous time of it ultimately in that Centurion Test match. Injuries, so many injuries in the game, and their their bowling is down to the bare bones. It's not surprising that South Africa got so many, six hundred plus, in the end, and, and won the match by an innings. Good comeback from South Africa, incidentally. I just wonder. And Mickey Arthur talked about it. I just wonder whether we are now. You know, talk about a development for the next decade and beyond. Whether we are in the era of where you know we do need to have substitutes for injured players. Sri Lanka were basically two bowlers down for long parts of the game. You're basically playing nine against 11. Not easy, really not easy. Uh, It'll be very different, of course, when England go to Sri Lanka, well, very shortly. In fact, they're flying on the 2nd of January to go and play in that test series. You imagine that spin's going to be the, going to hold sway there. Uh, They tried to employ their pace bowlers in in this series and and they they got injured. So really tough for Sri Lanka. But I I wonder whether substitutes is something that the ICC will need to look at in the future. And, and, and uh, as we mentioned, I think last week, you know, the, the, the influence of someone like Jimmy Anderson getting injured four or five overs into a test match, the Ashes in 2019, does have a, a calamitous effect on the match and sways the balance. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's likely that it'll happen, uh, I, I would say, at some point. I, I suppose also I, I'd worry slightly about South Africa's future in a way. I mean, they're whole uh, organization is so chaotic at the moment you do sort of fear for their for their future over the next year or two of trying to get everything together but um but before we think about that maybe you should just look back at the the 10 years of cricket i mean this is 10 years exactly since england set out to play the fifth test the sydney test of 2011 when they won of course the ashes and then also became number one test team in the world andrew strauss's team since then in the world, by my calculation, we've had 410 test matches, 1,188 one-day internationals and 910 T20s. Interesting, sort of three times as many one-day internationals as tests and twice as many T20s. And a, and a team like India will charge the same amount to a broadcaster for a test match as they will for a T20 international. Uh, so you can see where the, the money's going, if you like, to, to in, in the game. I just wonder whether that trend of more and more white ball matches is going to continue. And probably it, it could even mean less and less test countries, which is, is a shame. Well, when I say less and less test countries, I don't mean that, that suddenly that some teams will become non-test playing countries, but they'll play less and less test matches, which is a shame given that this decade we've just had has increased the number of, of test teams with Ireland and Afghanistan 
added, but they've hardly played any test matches between them. Yeah, it's a perverse situation, isn't it? More more test teams, but you know, relatively fewer test matches. I think the trend is likely to continue, isn't it? Two test match series and and move on and, and play white ball cricket. If that, you do wonder in, in 10 years' time who will be playing test match cricket, how much they will be playing. It, it is a form of the game that is, is under threat for all sorts of reasons, mainly uh, commercial, and that has been the trend. And it's hard to see that being reversed and it, it, it pains me to say it because you know, I love test cricket you love test cricket and, I'm, and mm. there are a lot of people in the UK who love test cricket and it, it seems that you know, England's it's not quite the last bastion of, of test match cricket but I think it is it is the the main driver in a way Australia and India as well Australia see the importance of it and some within India do as well not least Virat Kohli but it it it, it does feel as if Test match cricket is is slipping into the night, really. Uh, well, you mean be... you d- you don't mean that literally, I suppose, uh, because it is sort of being <laughs> well, more and more day night test matches being played. But well, and of course, a couple at least well at least one of the the, the, day, the test matches in India uh, against England is going to be a day night game at Ahmedabad. Uh, just to give you a stat here, uh, since the beginning of two thousand and ten, of the four hundred and fifty four tests played, two hundred and eighty four have been played by England, Australia, and India which is 62%. And England have played 121 tests in the last 10 years, which is more than anyone else. So clearly, you know, England is the home of test cricket, if you like. And then hopefully that, that will continue to be the case. But you just see other teams, other countries, struggling to sustain it. It, it won't survive in, in its current form or in, you know, with lots and lots of teams unless there is a, a determination at the top of the game to make it survive, to come up with a plan, a formula, uh, something that works, uh, you know, in terms of marketing and and raising revenue as well. Unless that happens, unless there is that strategy right from the top that that really works, that grabs people's imagination really and says, "Yeah, fine, this this works." Then I, I just don't see it as being all that viable in in a decade or or, or two decades' time. You you still get matches between England, Australia, and and India. But I can see some of the other countries sort of slipping by the wayside in terms of that, that focus on on Test match cricket. I, I hope I'm wrong, but unless unless there's that vision and that drive and that imagination and will really, then I, I don't I don't see I don't see a glorious future for the five day game. That does lead into my thought for the next decade, though. One thing I'd like to see, and that is. To make Test cricket, each match, a real major event, mm. think Goodwood, glorious Goodwood, or Wimbledon, for instance, and the way they dress up the venue and promote it ferociously for the weeks before it, and then it becomes not only a, a, a sporting event but a social event as well, and you know, there's just lots of uh, you know, buzz about it, not only in the city where it's being staged but in the country as well, and... You know, all the players want to get excited by it too, uh, which means in a way perhaps less is more. You know, we're trying to cram in seven test matches into a summer. It's quite hard to make each one of those a major event. But if you had five, as we used to, mm. and, and, you know, space them out a little bit more, I don't mean, I know the, the, the days of sort of a test match and then two matches against counties and then another test match is, are gone, but at least perhaps a, a little bit more space between perhaps the first two and the last three or something so that you can really dress up some of these test matches as a major event that people around that city get excited about. And and obviously the TV and radio companies can, can buy into that whole thing as well. It just becomes more of a cultural thing as well and a sort of celebration of, of the, the ultimate form of the game so that uh, it, it it just raises it up onto onto to sort of pedestal which it deserves. I sense that's not such a problem in England. I think I think you could do that here, but how do you do that for I don't know a Test match between Bangladesh and South Africa at Centurion? I mean, they'd you'd have to do something similar, wouldn't you? And written, you'd have to encourage all the local venues to to go for it in 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 a similar way. But do people in our modern world have that that time, the patience, or whatever to? 
well, I, you could sit through one day, wouldn't you, really? I, mean, I think one of the things about Test Creek is people do follow it from afar. You know, you, you're, you're checking your phones, your computers or whatever. How, how is the test match progressing? Or you watch some of it on the television and you come back to it a bit later. You listen to some of it on the radio and you, you come back to it a bit later. So this idea that because the grounds are empty that no one's interested, I think is, is, is misguided. I don't think that's right. But how do you get people into the grounds to watch it? Do you need people in the grounds? To watch it mm. in, in large numbers or is the fact that people are engaging it you know is, is that to some extent uh, worthwhile I, I don't know that that's the, we, the thing is we do judge sports success or, or failure to some extent on how many people turn up to watch it don't we actually whether you, you know when the director is panning around the, the ground with his or her camera or you know picking the shots are, you know are there spectators on the grassy banks or in the seats to to, to view and if, 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 if there's two people in the ground and you think people think well hold on if no one's interested in going to watch this why why am I watching it why am I following it on on TV radio whatever mm. and 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 it, you know a lot of emphasis goes towards the broadcasters as well to make test cricket in particular a, a little bit more understandable and I think you know Sky do a, a great job in England but I still think actually there's too much knowing commentary from people who are very you know steeped in the game. And actually, a little bit of uh, a bit of commentary, a bit of analysis, a bit of uh, observation from people who are not so uh, completely nailed on and completely immersed in cricket, but have a sort of slightly more detached view and something that can be consumed by the non-cricket fan or the non-aficionado um, is worth looking at. I'm not trying to dumb it down. I just think that there's lots of elements of the game which can be covered in, a more, in slightly more imaginative ways. And that might happen. That There's some announcements going to come out in the next few months um, with English cricket and technology partners and so on, which we might see, you know, some changes in the landscape of the way the game, the game is covered. So, uh, let, you know, there's some hopes. Have you, have you got a hope for the, for the next 10 years? Well, I think hopes and realities, they might be quite a long way apart. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see more countries involved in, in playing international cricket. I mean, I, ideally, more involved in playing test cricket. I'd like to see some of the really big countries. I'd love to see China. And I'd love to see the USA involved in playing international cricket on, you know, on a much larger scale. That would be, that would be fantastic. And to make it truly make it a global game. And I, I mean, I know the ICC are trying to grow the game through 2020. And that is obviously one way of doing it but yeah wouldn't it, I mean I, I think I would like to see cricket in the Olympic Games you know I think that would be fantastic for it whether it's going to happen not not quite so sure about that yeah I think it's it's on the agenda for the ICC to discuss and you know the developments in the USA for cricket are really starting to gather pace actually and um, with five venues being adapted from baseball to accommodate cricket mostly in the sort of the Dallas sort of region sort of south of the, the continent, um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about South America, obviously, but more sort of Florida and all that, that sort of area. And uh, there, there, there's some interesting momentum gathering there with their plans for uh, what they're calling MLC, Major League Cricket, to start in 2022, and a, a sort of minor version of it hopefully starting next summer, all, all based on the T20 format, of course. But they've already hired some quite interesting players. Corey Anderson from New Zealand has mm. signed up for one side and um, Dane Piet, I think, from South Africa is also involved. I can see Liam Plunkett, who's, of course, married to an American, also being involved in, in that uh, setup. So uh, USA Cricket is, is, is uh, watch this space, I think. And also uh, the, the, the Los Angeles Games of 2028 is the target for uh, cricket to, to try and be accommodated. So that's exciting to look forward to. What about um, just picking on, before we, we get into some highlights from our virtual cricket club, what about picking on a couple of highlights of the decade for you? Well, we've had some fantastic moments, inevitably, over the last 10 years. I think I would go for, I mean, there have been some brilliant moments. England, England winning in, in Sydney right at the start of that decade, we're, we're, you know, long live in my memory for all sorts of reasons. But I think I'm going to go for, for two last days. So I'm not necessarily going to separate these. Two last days on the same ground from test matches as my highlights of the decade. They were they were both matches at Headingley. They were the England-Sri Lanka test match of 2014, the last day there when Jimmy Anderson was out at the penultimate ball and Moen Ali 
played out wonderful innings on the final day, and England nearly survived, but Sri Lanka basically had their heading the 81 in, in 2014. Incredible comeback, brilliant innings from Angelo Matthews. I think it was one of the best test matches I've ever been to. Fant fantastic game of cricket. And the other last day, of course, Ben Stokes and Jack Leach's remarkable heroic last wicket partnership in, in 2019. Two incredible last days at Headingley. I will never, never forget the noise at Headingley on that final day in 2019. That sort of, that day, sort of the day out of your life, really, as a, a cricket follower, especially if you're English, of course, if you're Australian, you saw some of the faces in the crowd at the end of the game, you know, they could barely believe what had happened. But just the most thrilling, dramatic form of the game, uh, test cricket, and, and, and just the most incredible conclusion. So th those two matches, I think, for me, uh, the, the two highlights of the decade. What about you? Well, I'd have, um, I think, Stuart Broad, the 8 for 17 at Trent Bridge, bowling Australia out for 60. Even more remarkable because Broad came up to me before the game and said he thought we should bat, England should bat first. And I was slightly amazed, but, you know, two hours later, he had eight for 17 and well, Australia were bowled out for 60. They bowled second. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, but, but that was remarkable. And I just, I thought uh, it, it really encapsulated the trend in bowlers going round the wicket to left-handers and really excelling at that art. Because left-handers had actually, in the sort of previous decades, left-handers had been quite dominant in the top 10 run scorers in Test cricket. And you sort of felt that they were disproportionately represented in that top 10 run scorers, partly because maybe there are advantages to being a left-hander. And that the right-arm over bowlers in particular hadn't ever quite figured out how to combat them. But they had, with that strategy of going round the wicket, broad, angling it in and then swinging it away from those left-handers and being totally unplayable. And obviously a lot of other bowlers have, have uh, since emulated him. But I thought that sort of really encapsulated that that move. And I know that left-handers' test averages have gone down significantly since more and more bowlers have gone round the wicket. And of course, you know, broad was all over David Warner with that same tactic in that Ashes of 2019. I just pick on another one, um, completely different, but the women's World T20 final in Melbourne, where it was a total sellout with 80-odd thousand people watching a women's cricket match. And I thought that was wonderful. A amazing occasion, beautiful weather, a, a good match. One, obviously, by the home side in the end. Australia still dominant in women's cricket. But the way it's changed, and, you know, we had Isha Guha in the... Virtual Cricket Club a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about her World Cup final in 2009 when there were 2,500 people at uh, Sydney Oval. You know, so that's not the SCG, that was North Sydney Oval, a, a club ground. In 11 years uh, that it elapsed, uh, the game has, the women's game has totally taken off. So that that's a great thing to, to, to sort of a legacy of the decade and no doubt more to come. It's only going to, the, the women's game is only going to take off more as as time goes on, and that I think you know that's fantastic for the game as well. You can't just have the game for one half the population; it, it's got to be for everyone. And I, I think that's I think that's that definitely. I mean, you do think there's not necessarily so think in ten years' time, but twenty years' time, thirty years' time, where the game is going to be. And it, I, I, when I think back, I think something like um, um, football in America. Um, there's a lot of a lot of girls play football in America and that game has really taken off hasn't it the, the USA professional uh, women's soccer team you know one of the top teams in the world was the for the men it hasn't really happened and that that's been where the growth has been in the USA and and I I see something similar for the for the women's game one thing uh, Ebony Rainford Brent said recently though she said she one thing she slightly fears about the women's game is the dominance of Australia that Australia is going to be so far ahead of everybody else I mean the game is really developing there massively and, and I suppose one of the challenges to the women's game is that other parts of the world need to to catch up with Australia because they are as you said I think this could just be you know an, an, a decade of, of total Australian domination and whether that's good for the women's game I'm not sure it's great for Australia I mean you, you can't fault them they're doing absolutely the right thing but the challenge is for everyone else as well. Okay, well, that's a, a positive note uh, we hope to end a pretty grim year generally. And the next half of this programme is looking back at some extracts 
from our guests' appearances in the virtual cricket club over the last month and a half. And just look out for, in particular, Alistair Cook, who incidentally was named in the ICC Test Team of the Decade, talking about how singing has helped his batting. So now we're going to play you some more extracts from the Virtual Cricket Club guests we've had over the last few weeks, starting with Alistair Cook explaining how hard it is to escape from your day job as a top international batsman. We, we had Steve Smith, uh, we've had uh, interviewed recently, actually. and I mean, he's a bit of a sort of exception, I suppose, or a bizarre case. But he says that, you know, he falls asleep at night or tries to fall asleep at night. And he's still thinking about how am I going to get runs against Stuart Broad with a, a gully and two slips and a short extra cover and, you know, a couple of people on the leg side. So he's going to sleep, still, still visualising how to make runs were, were you were you like that in sort of in the middle of series and yeah, in the middle like, of mate, like, matches? Like I, I would say Steve Smith does it or seems to do it every night. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I would like. I think he's that engrossed in it and so yes, that's true. And like and, and you can and actually that's probably why he's probably one of the world's best batsmen, isn't he? Or if if not there with Coley, you'd say. In terms of that, that's just a different level. Obviously, during a series, during a uh, when you're in that okay, high performance mode, of course, you, whether I'd be going to sleep, thinking totally about it, but it's not very far away from your mind very often. You know, it's great when you do get that escapism when you are just talking with the lads and over a beer and in, going out for dinner, whatever. But there's always, when you're in such a big series, the back of your mind's always there. And I think that's why this summer, I think, would have been quite tough for as a player and those bubbles because you just, you just don't get that little escapism for that couple of hours at the end of the night you know, just to try and forget about what's going to happen the next day, because it is a, you know, it's an intense environment. It's an amazing environment. It's never, everyone always talks about how intense and the bad stuff about it, but it, it is what it is. But in that, in that social bubble, that would have been quite hard just to get those, those cover hours when your brain not working. But someone like Steve Smith, he seems like he needs his brain to work. And I don't think he sleeps much, even though he, I doesn't, think he owned, no, he owned he a mattress that. company, doesn't he? I think, which is doing very well, which is ironic, but he doesn't sleep. <laughs> Next, we discussed the World Test Championship points system and England's prospects for the rest of the winter with Joss Butler. Simon, can you fathom it? Well, it's one of those things where it sort of feels like a good idea, you know, to try mm. to make every test worth something, to have a test championship. But because of the, because of the fact that basically some countries can only play two test matches because of their financial situations and England and Australia want to play the Ashes and they want to play India over four test matches, five test matches. That's why there's this sort of confusing points system. Uh, mm. I, I hear the new chairman of the ICC said it, need, you know, it needs a real looking at and whether it'll, you know, whether it'll continue or whether it'll continue in its present form uh, remains to be mm. seen after this summer. But I mean, they, they still think the final is going to go ahead this summer in, in England at Lords in the, in the middle of the summer. Mm -hmm. Mm, they do, yeah. And um, so as a result of that sort of duel at the top of the table there, if Australia win this series, there is talk that India will then have to win most of their remaining test matches to be in contention for that final, which means, of course, when they play England in uh, February, March, they'll probably produce raging turners. Is that the, um, the chat amongst the England players and are you playing I mean we've heard from sort of talking to Brody and people like that that when you play at Loughborough in the tent that you're playing on sort of specially practicing on specially dried out pitches yeah I think I think as um as much as they can they've tried to make the pitches to be relevant certainly is spinning I wouldn't say it's like a dry dust bowl it's more of a wet Real soft wicket that spins, really. It's obviously, it's going to be so hard to recreate that, but it's, it's fantastic for us to be able to practice uh, on grass wickets um, in December. Um, but and I think you know, turning up to a place like Sri Lanka and India, um, it's really about reacting to to what you get. I know certain times the pitches can be very flat, especially in the first half of the games, um, or like you say that they can produce wickets that sort of turn from, from ball one. You know, look at the series last time in Sri Lanka, you know, it's been dominated and, and seen barely played a part. Um, but in, I think in India, especially now they have a, a real battery of, of strong Indian pace bowlers as well. I think they, they fancy themselves on those surfaces. 
Now, this was a first. England's two best left-arm spinners, male and female, Jack Leach and Sophie Eccleston, on the same show. And Jack reveals how he re-enacted some key moments from that amazing last-wicket stand with Ben Stokes. Ruti wanted us to go out on the, on the wicket and just have a drink um, to sort of take it all in. Um, and then he sort of, no, not him, but someone convinced me that I needed to do a sort of like repeat performance of like my single. So I did that, someone filmed <laughs> it and somehow it got out and I was just uh, mortified and I was so embarrassed. Um, but luckily it went down okay. But, so you sort um, of did your little nerdle off the hip yeah, and sort yeah. of set off for the run in, in the dressing yeah, room or no, somewhere in a hotel or somewhere. No, it was nice. It was um, it was on the wicket, and it was kind of reminding me of club cricket days, where you kind of sit out on the boundary afterwards and have a drink. And um, yeah, Ruti wanted to go out and just sort of savor the moment and say that this is going to be one of the greatest Test matches ever. So um, yeah, it was it was mad times, and then got a McDonald's drive through on the way home. So that was perfect. <laughs> McDonald's drive through. That's God. It's, it's that's the lowest common denominator. 12 o'clock curfew, so that's what we had to do. Meanwhile, in our virtual cricket club, Isha Guha says arriving in Australia during a pandemic to commentate on the winter's cricket was both challenging and life-enhancing in unexpected ways. Tell us what happened when you arrived in Australia. It isn't just sort of, a, you know, stamp your passport, <laughs> pick up your luggage and, and off you go and, you know, out into the wilds there. What, 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 was, the, what was the situation? Yeah, I mean, I guess this year has thrown up new sort of circumstances and, and the best way of dealing with it is to just, you've almost just got to be prepared for anything, haven't you? Otherwise, it does become a bit too much. But in in the week build up to actually flying, we still didn't know if we were coming out to Australia. So packed our bags, we were on the way to the airport, got a call from Australia saying visa hadn't been approved, turned around, went back home, um, had our bags in the living room and we were just we were sitting around for three or four days just waiting to see if it was going to happen or not um, we were prepared for every eventuality which was we both weren't going to be able to go um, we both were going to be able to come to Australia or I was going to be able to come and Rich wasn't so um, you know we, we are unbelievably thankful it's been so difficult for even a lot of Australians to get back into their country so you know just to be able to to get here was amazing. Um, the actual flight was an experience. You know, you have to wear your mask the whole time. God, that must be. Uh, and uh, but but to be honest, everything was run really smoothly up until the time we got to Australia, whereby it is just potluck as to which hotel you're put in. Um, so <laughs> at the same time, in Perth, Shane Warne was um, quarantining and Mike Hussey. So I was like messaging them to get advice on on what to expect. Um, we heard horror stories on the bus um, to the hotel about how, you know, at the start of, of lockdown, um, people were escaping by tying bedsheets together. Um, so, and so literally from that point on in Perth, no one had a balcony. So we were, again, just preparing ourselves for the fact that there would be no fresh air in the room. Um, and yeah, you're just, you're basically in a room together, um, not allowed to leave. Um, we handled it okay in the fact that we got into a bit of a routine. I had loads of calls to make back home in the evenings and stuff like that. We, we did a bit of exercise in the mornings and, um, yeah, I mean, me and Richard are never short of things to do. Like we've, there's always something for us to do. And actually we're probably the latest ever people to Harry Potter. So we completed Harry Potter in quarantine. England's most successful off-spinner, Graham Swan, now demonstrates the invaluable and subtle versatility he learned from an old Australian spinner. And, and you mentioned about off-spin bowling. Um, just You've got a ball there, haven't you? Um, so, I mean, I, I, always, I often used to, to, to talk to you about this and you sort of tried to explain it, the, the ability you have to make the ball some turn and some look as if they're going to turn, but because yeah. of a slightly different grip, they tend to just hit the seam and go straight on. Can you demonstrate that? Yeah, um, I had a cricket ball here somewhere. You lost it now. I'll find you? it again. Who took it? Hang on, wait there. Right, so this ball, this is off my shelf. This one is 
Sri Lanka. I, I also got, I, I write where I've got them from and why I've stolen them at the end of a game. So this one is Sri Lanka at Cardiff. I got four for 16 off seven. When we bowled them out for about four, I nicked the ball at the end. Um, so yeah, so basically the off spinner, so English off spinners are supposed to hold it like this between those two knuckles. That is absolute cod's wall. If it doesn't work, you'll never be a decent test bowler if you do that. You should hold it between the first knuckle there and then this back one. That's what I always did and really flick it. That's where you get a lot of revolutions. And so when you're bowling a normal off feet, you come over the top. And when you're bowling one, you want to go straight on right at the last minute, you go underneath. And so the ball will literally go down. I used to call it a flying saucer ball. And it will wobble on the way down, sometimes hit the seam and turn. Most of the time, go straight on. And it was a very powerful weapon to left-handed batsmen. Mm. Especially Marcus North. How easy is it to pick that up as a batsman? That you, you obviously that sleight of hand right at the last second. I mean, you you must have faced lots of spin bowlers in your time, and you you knew what you were trying to do. So presumably you were thinking about what they were trying to do. How how easy or difficult is it as a batsman to to pick up that sleight of hand at the last second? Um, it, well. Seemingly, it's quite hard. I got taught that by Ashley Mallett, Australian coach. No one in England had ever taught me that. No one in England who I spoke to afterwards knew about that ball. Um, he called it a square spinner. Um, he said it would be really useful when you're playing Australia, and he was dead right. No one I've seen since, I haven't seen any young lads who try and bowl it, who understand how to bowl it. It's a very simple ball to bowl once you're used to it, if, you're, if your action suits it. So for me, my action suited the found it very simple to bowl and it is quite seemingly very hard to pick I knew it was hard to pick because Mike Hussey when he was at Northampton when I used in the nets he used to come out saying mate there's that one ball you bowl I always think it's an arm ball but sometimes it turns how are you doing it and so I didn't tell him I made something up and pretended it was all fluke because I thought I might play against him in the ashes one day Reflecting on his captaincy career, Alistair Cook recounts a low point, Headingley 2014. The, the, the game which stands out would be the 2014 Sri Lanka game at Headingley in terms of a tactic where, you know, they were, I mean, I can't remember the scores, but I remember them being level seven down with Harath and Angelo Matthews in at the crease. And... We went back, we went to that, the theory was we went to try and starve Matthews of the strike, harass, try and bowl as many balls as you can harass. Um, and, and so basically have everyone on the boundary to Matthews. And when, so if he plays like four balls, then bring him in and then, you know, try, do you know what I mean? So like, but be really yeah. clear on that. And that's what we tried to do. And actually the first couple of overs worked really well. And, he, and I, I remember it today, he, he played a massive whooshka, the last ball of an over, trying to hit that boundary because everyone was up. I think it's off Chris Jordan. Although it might not have been, but it fell just short of second slip. I'm talking inches short of second slip. So, you know, for three, three or four overs, that build of that tactic worked. Um, but then three and a half hours later, it didn't work when Harath and Matthews. So actually not changing that tactic was, was probably my, my worst thing. I think Shane Warne described it as the worst captain he'd ever seen. Um, <laughs> But that that was that was obviously a mistake. But it shows what fine margin sport is because if that capture carried, you know, like I mean, you can only you can say about lots of things, ifs, woulds, and all that kind of stuff. But if that catcher carried, you know, it was a, it was a justifiable technique, but a, a tactic. But I should have changed it. So that, I would like to change that um, that thing. But then we wouldn't have had Moen's brilliant hundred and kind of the drama of the second to last ball of Jimmy Anson. Triple format maestro Joss Butler compliments the authorities on the way they have managed biosecurity and player welfare these past few months. Is it? Do you almost feel like I'd just like to escape for a little bit? Because you're, you're, you know, you're triple format. You're going out on the second of January to play in the, the Sri Lanka tests. You know, I mean, there's there's no respite. No, and I think one thing that the that cricket has become a bit more 24-7 I think with the lockdown stuff so just you know being able to escape the hotel and go for dinner or go for a walk and, and get out and, and really escape I think especially in England yeah, just gone you know staying on the ground as well um, certainly um, 
made that escape a lot harder and that's something I've always enjoyed I enjoy the time away from the game as well and, and like to you know, turn up to games full of energy and fresh and excited to play and um, so that's sort of been a bit harder to sort of leave the ground behind you know especially in in England um, but you know as much as you it is different it's different for everyone and, and you just want to play and be a part of these things uh, as fantastic in the IPL, Rajasthan looked after us brilliantly and I could have my family there with me the whole time, which made a huge difference. Um, and I think you know, everyone's just sort of working their way through it. I think one thing the ECB has been really good about is player welfare. And I think they're very aware of, of mental health and, and trying to look after people and try and catch things early as opposed to sort of leaving it too late for someone to then say I'm, I'm really burnt out and I can't hack it in this environment um, no I think they've been they've been really good at that and quite forward thinking especially with this year coming up there's a, a hell of a lot of cricket and let's say multi-format guys your, your Ben Stokes Joffre Archers you have to be really careful how you manage them Looking at the women's game, we asked Isha Guha if sledging is as prevalent in their matches as in those of their male counterparts. One, one thing you said earlier, Isha, you, you loved the battle when you were bowling. So, so what sort of what sort of bowler were you in terms of your temperament? Were you were you chatting away at the batsman? Were you were you sledging the batsman? What, what, what was it like playing against the Australians? Is it all is it all nice out there, or is it actually you know pretty gritty out on the field? No, definitely gritty. Definitely. I mean, the women kind of ran parallel with the men in, in terms of the Australian women dominated for a good decade while, while their, their men did as well. So when I first came into the team in 2002, you know, a lot of the senior players had baggage of playing against Australia. Like rarely ever did we beat them. In fact, we never beat them. Um, in 2005, that was a really significant moment. It was the first time we beat them in a one day international for 10 years and the first time we beat them in a test series for 43 years or something like that so it was you know playing against Australia was always quite a daunting prospect but a few of us youngsters coming into the team myself Catherine Lydia we didn't have that baggage and so for us it was just any any game um, and we just wanted to play against the best and, and be able to perform against the best so um yeah, that 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 he that sort of battle I talk about in the middle. It was more actually with myself. Um, I, I would kind of berate myself if I didn't bowl as as well as I could, but that would kind of gear myself up to to kind of bowl better. And um, I, I could never really. I wasn't good at sledging, just because. <laughs> nice. I just didn't want it to backfire on me. I'm just not very good at that. What was um, the worst thing you said on the field? It. What was the worst thing you oh. saw on the field? Can, is, there something, is there a moment we thought, oh, why did I say that? Or is that me? Can you call, can you call a, an opposition player a, a B-I-T-C-H on the field? <laughs> yeah, you probably could, but, but not that didn't. I have said it directly to anyone, no. <laughs> we asked Graham Swan whether he approached bowling in a first or second innings of a test match with different mindsets. I used to try and take the pressure off myself at all times. Um, so turning up to a day one of a test match, I would be thinking there's no pressure on me whatsoever. I've not got to open the bowling. If we're batting, I'm number eight. That's fine. I can sit my feet up for two hours at least. If we're bowling, I've got to bowl what? An over before lunch because we're English and Spinner always has one over before lunch, even though it never gets a wicket. I've got to bowl six overs before tea and then possibly 12 till the new ball, maybe four, so maybe 20 overs in the whole day. There's no pressure on me whatsoever. I'll pick up one or two wickets because, you know, I'm bowling that many overs. And if I go for 50 runs, I've done my job. So straight away, I, I was just convincing myself that I had the easiest job in the world. And that made it a lot easier for me. Rather than thinking, oh my God, I'm the only spinner. I can't let the seams down. I've got a picture on the ball. And I... I try and go about and try and have a body language that was as blasé, laissez-faire as I could. Even if in my head I was thinking, Christ, this wicket's good, or oh, we've got our work cut out. And then in the second innings, I would do the exact opposite. I would say, the wicket is doing everything for me now. So the ball's turning, there's footholds. Uh, the pressure's supposed to be on me to win the game. Brilliant, I love that. I want to be man of the match. 
So bring it on. That's all I want. I want to be the man. I want to be famous. I want to be, I want to take more wickets than Jimmy Anderson. I'm much better looking than him. So I want more wickets than him as well. Stuff like that. Even though it's complete cod shit, I would, I would convince myself that this was going to happen. And that took, again, that, I found that took the pressure off for me all the time. Reminiscing about England's epic 517 for one at Brisbane 10 years ago, Alistair Cook reflects on the contrasting approaches of his two partners that day. What amazes about a big partnership is just how quickly it goes. You know, like when it just, you suddenly, time just flies by and suddenly, you know, you, you suddenly see a 50 partnership. And when you're both in that kind of rhythm and, and moment, like suddenly, oh, there's 100, 150, you just don't notice it. It just like, I don't know what, what we, do we put on 320 maybe on that? Or? Yeah, I think so. Like that. I mm. mean, Trotty and, and Strauss are very different to back with. Strauss is very much more, you know, just just chat and keep going, fella. Well, Trotty was very much, let's get to, he loved batting in fives. Very, mm. like, if we were on, say, 83, he was like, let's get to 85, get to, you hit a four, then you're on 87, come on, let's get to 90. And he, he just does not stop that. That is what he does all the time. So even there, when we're 480 for one, he was like, let's get to 485. And amazing, amazing rigidness and um, determination to do it. But um, that, that last 45 minutes of batting together, I mean, if you carried on, I even come down the wick and hit over the top and stuff. I, I have got that. I didn't, I thought um, the ball. But that was that. I mean, that, that's the trouble is, the trouble about our highlights innings of yours is there's only three shots in it. Oh, thanks, Simon. From the traditional to the avant-garde, Joss Butler explains the thought processes behind playing the ramp shot. Yeah, I mean, a... you get the incredible positions you get into. That is a 96-mile-an-hour delivery, which you're facing front on. I mean, what's the process there? I mean, firstly, it's premeditated, presumably. Yeah, absolutely premeditated. Um, and I, I don't know, it's obviously a culmination of years of practice and trust. And as simple as you can make the game, really, is to try and hit the ball where the field is done. Um, and he had fine leg in the circle. Um, and with his pace, you know, someone who, you know, when you look at the way he bowls, he's quite a, a skiddy, fast bowler, generally bowls quite full, um, which is sort of um, obviously bowling extra fast here. But yeah, the, his style of ball, I thought he was going to bowl, is well suited to the shot. So um it's just sort of yeah you know, I wasn't aware of how fast he was bowling really you just sort of know it's rapid and um but it suits the shot and it made sense at the time to to play the shot so that's sort of the thought process that goes into it now here's an ambition for the future to see a woman playing in a men's county side Sophie Eccleston is keen and Jack Leach is nervous I think I honestly think that you could play County cricket. I think you bowl just yeah. about fast enough. I get so many and, comments saying, why don't you play men's cricket? So um, many. And what's your view? I mean, I'd love to. Like, I genuinely would love to. Like, it'd be would so you? good. I gen I'm not, not being, I'm not being an idiot, but I just feel like, I feel like I could hold my own. I feel like some, some of the girls could. What do you think, Jack? I mean, not, not specifically about Sophie, but what do you think about a woman playing in county I cricket? I don't... I don't want Sophie to come to Somerset. That's all I know. Um, but because <laughs> um, I won't have a place. But um, you could have two. Uh, well, you could have two spinners. That, yeah, that, that Bunsen. You could. But you could both yeah, be operating. Yeah. Um, but she yeah, wouldn't no, understand anybody. If there's, I don't think I don't know about the rules or anything. But I think that would be great. Um, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't happen. Um, but yeah, I. Don't know whether it's possible or not. The only thing I would think of is obviously like when the boys are bowl. If the boys would bowl at us, like we're mm. not used to ninety miles an hour at our heads. Mm. Yeah, I think we could get used to it though. I mean, you know, it's just practice, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I wasn't. Exactly. I listen. I neither Jack or I are all that good at ninety mile an hour out of heads. We have to deal with it. Uh, That's true. I don't. Know. I don't like it at all. Do you not at all? No. Do you think it's like really quick? Yeah, like, yeah, definitely, definitely think it's quick, but um, you just have to try and, yeah, it's horrible. Like, I think, uh, yeah, but obviously I, I bat down the order, so I'm not facing it all the time. So I feel like when you're in, you're just kind of trying to stay out there for as long as possible. But um, 
yeah, there's ways of definitely making it feel slower as well. I think if you get like once you get over the kind of um, anxiety, I guess, of like, oh, it's quick. And actually, because to start with, your body wants to like move like before the ball's been released to try and like help you play it like better. But actually, that's the worst thing you can do. You need to just stay still and wait for it. And once I kind of worked that out, I found it a lot easier. Meanwhile, Graham Swan refutes the idea that frontline spinners should also be able to make lots of runs. I think, I, I think probably that is what they think when they're picking a team. But what, what England failed to realise is that the spinner is a bona fide and very important part of being a number one team in the world. If you're going to win test matches and get up and win that test championship and win overseas, you can't treat your spinner as, as a luxury who you don't play in test matches who, you know, I've seen two or three games where Joe Root has been expected to, oh, he'll do the overs for the spinner. Bollocks. As, while we're thinking like that, we'll get destroyed in India and Sri Lanka. Although, although actually, Joe Root could be quite a good spinner. I mean, he's got, he's got, the, he's got the natural skill, but perhaps not the application. Because Joe Root is a brilliant sort of part-time spinner who can... Yeah. Bowling spin, as a... As a, as a you know, your first and foremost skill in the test team is not a part-time job. It's not something you do when you're not batting just because you're fielding. English cricket has to move way ahead, way beyond that way of thinking if we're ever going to move forward either with spinners or batting against spinners. Because the very fact that you just said that, I'm not having to go at you, Yossa, but the very fact that that's still prevalent in people's yeah. minds yeah. is absolutely hardship. Yeah, and, and I, I suppose the the evidence is very clear with, well, you've got Shane Warne, Anil Kumble and um, Murali, three, easily the leading three spinners in the world, and none of them would really have great pretensions as a batsman, would they? Although they, they made their runs, but they were specialist bowlers, and that's what they're, they're in the being, team for every being game. Being able to bat down the order means if you score a 30, you've done a brilliant job, or a 40, incredible job. 30 or 40 means nothing if you're not taking 20 wickets in a series. I mean, if, you, if you're a good enough bowler to get five or nine wickets in the game, the 30 runs you got, 40 runs you get, mean nothing because you've completely outweighed them. And so rather than, we do pick spinners who'll get two or three wickets in the match and their 30-odd runs and think that they're doing a good job. They're not. They're bit part players. We need to, we need to aim higher than that. And finally, Alistair Cook explains how being a chorister at St Paul's Cathedral in his teenage years had an important bearing on his ability as a test batsman. I mean, I think it's pretty well documented, apart from my farming, that I was a choir boy when I was younger, from 8 to 13 at St Paul's Cathedral. And, you know, for me, what it didn't, the concentration things that is, is used to being able to perform under pressure. You know, from, from a very early age, I was put in services where you know, Monday, to, Monday, to, just on a regular week, I sang on service Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, to, one on Saturday and, and probably two on Sunday. That's seven times a week you're performing in front of people. Yes, you're not performing on your own. You know, I was never at that much of a soloist, but you're still performing. You can't make mistakes and the standard was very high. So you're used to performing in front of people. And then in certain days you were performing on TV or you're at the Royal Albert Hall or whatever you're doing in massive occasions. And But the music never... No, never changed, did it? The music is the same whether you're sitting and the music doesn't change. It's very different, very, I know it's very different to, to cricket because obviously when you're batting, the, yeah, a lot of variables. Like if a ball ball's an absolute jaffa, as we'll go back to Ryan Harris in 2013, you know, that, that ball, you know, I would never hit that ball a hundred times. If, ball, if people bowl that a hundred times in a row, I'd, I'd get naught every single time. But obviously the music, the music doesn't change and there's no reason why you should make mistakes. So I was used to very early age being able to just kind of almost ignore everything happening whether there's 20 people in the service or a hundred you know a thousand and on tv and just being able to concentrate on reading the music and, and being able to sing i suppose that goes to the cricket doesn't it like i was a very every time i went up to the next level or there was i was playing a club game or then i went up to the next level under 18 then i played england 19 is irrelevant for me who was playing who was watching i i managed to, i had that ability to, to be able to focus on that ball um and I think that that was that is what I meant by it. That's kind of what I meant by the thing, and and just been been doing it time and time and time again. You kind of get used to. I'm not going to get me wrong. There was days where I didn't concentrate as well as I could have done, and 
the bloke on my shoulder or the occasion got better at me, but I kind of won that battle more times than I did. Okay, well, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed those extracts from the last couple of months from the world's best cricket club. You can join us for our future live streams, starting with Ian Bell on the 7th of January and then Andrew Strauss on the 14th. And many other famous names from the world of cricket will be joining us from then on. Thursday night, 7pm, you can join us by signing up at worldsbestcricketclub.com. It's £6 a month to join, but for that you get at least four live events and many other things as well, blogs and podcasts and so on. And of course, it's all in aid of the Professional Cricketers Trust, which is the most fantastic charity, badly in need of all the help we can give them. Please tell your friends about our virtual cricket club and, of course, also this podcast. The next episode will be in a few days' time when we'll be considering the rapidly evolving landscape of broadcast cricket coverage. OK, well, I hope you can join us for that. And, of course, I hope, like everybody, that 2021 is vastly better than 2020. Happy New Year to you all and thanks for listening. Podcast Network.